Amen and amen. If you would, turn to Romans chapter 7. I'd like to actually start with a couple verses in Romans 7, which are actually an explanation of the significance of the resurrection. And then I'd like for us to look at some scripture that talks about the resurrection itself. But I'd like to start here, in light of the fact that we've been looking at this passage the last couple of weeks, in light of our men's retreat, which we focused on the gospel to the saint, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And actually, Paul asks a question here in Romans 7 at the very end, and he gives an answer to it uh, that fits in very well with Easter. Uh, because what Paul says here actually points to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it tells us that the significance of what Paul is talking about here is tied very closely to what Christ did. At this point in Romans, Paul is talking about who we are in Christ, and he's talking about what God has promised us, which is connected to what Christ did for us. So we can't fully understand who we are in Christ or what God promises us because of Christ unless we know what Christ did for us. And so that's what we are celebrating at Easter time is what Christ actually did for us. And so um, Easter is very much about answering the question that was asked in the passage that Eric read at the beginning of our service. When Jesus asked, who do people say I am? And then, who do you say I am? So the question is, who do you say Jesus is? And that's the question that all of us will have to answer. And the answer of the apostles and the answer of the New Testament is that Jesus is who he said he was. He is God, he is Savior, he is Lord. And so uh, we celebrate at Easter time the reality of what God did in answering the question, who is Jesus? Because on the cross, people still wondered, who is this Jesus? Um, most people at that time, obviously among the Jews, they would think if you're crucified, you must be cursed by God because that's what the Old Testament says. And the Bible does say he was cursed by God, but not because of himself, but because of us. And so it was the resurrection that actually revealed who Jesus really is. And therefore, we celebrate Easter in light of that. Now, some of you may realize that this day, April 9th, is the date that many scholars believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. It was on April 9th, that he was crucified on April 7th, and he was raised on April 9th, 30 A.D. Now, there are other scholars who differ with that, but many believe that that's the case. And if so, obviously we'd be celebrating this year, uh, Easter on the very day that Jesus was raised from the dead uh, almost 2,000 years ago. And you notice we don't um, worship on Fridays. When Jesus was crucified, we worship on Sundays. And Sunday is the Lord's Day because that's when he was raised from the dead. That's how we know that Friday is good. It's because of Sunday. We would not know that Friday was good it were not for Sunday. And so we celebrate on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And so if you look um, at just verses 24 and the first part of 25, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in this passage, Paul has been talking about the reality of evil. And on the one hand, um, if you read all that the New Testament says, Paul does talk about the evil out there in the world. There is evil out there in the world. Some of you may realize, have heard, that there's another celebration going on in L.A. today in West Hollywood. And that celebration is a drag march where the LGBTQ community is protesting anti-LGBTQ laws and, and those kinds of things. And so obviously, the reality is the Christian church loves all those in sin. Why? Because all of us are sinners. And yet, 
one of the things that Jesus said is, the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And so why was Jesus crucified? Because he took a stand against evil. And yet he came to deliver us from that evil so that we could be forgiven for the evil, so that we could be free from it and be what God truly created us to be. And so one of the misunderstandings is is that Christianity is against those in the LGBTQ community. No, we're actually for them in the most important way possible. We want them to be forgiven of their sin just like we've received forgiveness for our sins. And unless we know what sin is, we don't need a savior because Jesus said, I came for those who are sick, not for those who are healthy, those who are well. And so the good news of the gospel is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ. And that's why we proclaim the gospel, not out of hate, but out of love. And so that's what Paul deals with in a number of different places is the reality of evil in the world and the need for that evil to be forgiven and eradicated from this world. And that's why Jesus came. And yet evil is not just out there. Evil is in here. And Romans 7 is exactly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the evil in himself and the evil in all of us. He says, wretched man that I am. There's an interesting story that was written back in the late 1800s called uh, The Lady or the Tiger. And so many of you may be familiar with this short story. It's written actually by a man who was the son of a Methodist minister. And he wrote this story about a king who had an interesting way of dealing out justice. And what he did was when someone was accused of a crime... He would have them go into this public, this public arena and everyone would gather and, that, and he would bring them out and he would give them a choice between two doors. And behind one door would be a tiger. Behind the other door would be a beautiful lady. And he would say, it's up to you. You get to determine your fate. You get to determine uh, what life is going to be like for you From now on, we're going to see whether you're guilty or innocent based on the choice you make. And as the story goes, this king had a daughter and this daughter fell in love with a a man who was of lower status. And when the king heard about that, he threw the man into prison and said, there's no way my daughter is going to marry a man of lower status. And therefore, um, he said, you will have to endure the poetic justice of the arena. And so, uh, obviously, the princess loved this man dearly. And so she did all that she could. She bribed those who knew what was going to happen and found out which door was going to have the tiger and which door was going to have the lady. Because the way it played out was, if you picked the door with the tiger, obviously, you were going to be mauled and killed. If you picked the door with the woman behind it, you were immediately married to this woman and they celebrated. So it was either poetic justice in terms of punishment or poetic justice in terms of reward. And so this young man who was in love with the daughter of the prince, uh, daughter of the king, walks into the arena and he immediately looks toward the king, but he's not really looking at the king, he's looking at the daughter. And he's trying to find out which door to pick. And he looks in her eyes and he realizes that she has found out which door had the tiger and which door had the lady. And she, looking at him, just barely moves and she has her hands resting there in the chair at the right hand of her father, the king. She just quickly goes like that. No one else sees her because they're looking at him. He sees her and he immediately runs toward the right door. The interesting thing is the man who wrote the story ends the story right there. And he says that the point of the story is which came out of the open door, the lady or the tiger? 
And he goes on to talk about the fact that um, this story is about the human heart. He says it's a study of the human heart because this woman, this princess, has has found out that the lady behind the door is someone she hates. The lady behind the door is someone who had an interest in the young man that she loved. And she realizes that either way she's going to lose this young man. She will either lose him to despair if, she's, if he's eaten by the tiger or lose him to jealousy if this woman gets to marry him and enjoy him for the rest of her life. And the writer of the story says... The more we reflect on the question, the harder it is to answer it. It involves a study of the human heart. Why does it reveal the human heart? Because if you read how the story goes, the young lady, the princess, never asks the question, what would God have me do? And the emphasis is even not on what would be best for the young man in the arena question is what can I endure can I endure the jealousy if the young lady gets him can I endure the despair if the tiger gets him it's really all about me it's all about the princess it's all about what decision will I make based on what I want what I think I can endure and so I think that's why he raises the question as he does, and he describes the dilemma as he does, because he's saying it's it's a study of the human heart and just how even in the most difficult of circumstances, we find ourselves wrestling with our own hearts. But it's not just the evil on the outside of our father who wants to put to death the young man that we love, but it's the evil on the inside in terms of am I going to say, there's no way I'm going to let him have her. No way, no way I'm going to let her have him. If I can't have him, then no one can. So there's the evil on the outside. There's the evil on the inside. And, and the Bible tells us that we need to be rescued from both. We need to be rescued from the evil that's all around us as well as the evil that's within us. That's why I've, I've mentioned before when G... K. Chesterton answered the editorial question, what is wrong with the world? He said, I am. I am wrong. And he says, if we don't understand that, then we don't really have a place for really evaluating what's going on around us. Well, I share all that and I highlight all that because Paul is applying the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to the issue of evil. And he's saying the solution is Jesus. The question is, how do we know Jesus is the solution? The resurrection. That's why we know Jesus is the answer. So if you would turn to Mark chapter 16, I want to read just one of the accounts of the resurrection as it's found in Mark chapter 16. And I want to highlight for us uh, what we find here in Mark 16 as well as the other gospels just briefly as we move toward trying to apply what we find in the scriptures about the resurrection to our lives this morning. In Mark 16, verse 1, all the Gospels end with the resurrection account. This one ends this way. It says in verse 1 of Mark 16, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, in your Bibles, it goes on from there to add verses 9 through 20. There's probably a note in your Bible that says uh, those verses 9 through 20 are found in later manuscripts. And most of the verses are just um, verses that reflect what you find in the other Gospels. And so the earliest manuscripts of Mark end at verse 8. And so when you think about that, that means that Mark's gospel includes the um, account of the resurrection of Jesus, but it ends with the women running away, astonished and yet afraid. There's an abrupt ending there. It's like the cliffhanger, is it the lady or the tiger? Because the ending is meant to leave us with questions. It's meant to cause us to say, what does this mean? Isn't that probably what the ladies who went to the tomb, found the tomb empty, um, and then ran away uh, to find the disciples? I imagine they were thinking, what does this mean? Now, Mark begins his gospel by saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there's no doubt in Mark's mind what the answer is. But he wants the readers to ask the question, what does it mean that the tomb is empty? And everybody has to answer that because that's an historical fact that his body was never found. The tomb was empty. The religious leaders could not produce a body. No one produced a body. The tomb was empty. And so the question is, what does that mean? What is the implication of that for us all? Um, It's like um, when we think about how can I get an answer to, to the question? Well, if you look at the passage, you note there is an explanation given in the passage Because the angel shows up and tells them that they're not to be amazed. Not to be amazed that Jesus rose from the dead. There's a sense in which they ought to have expected that. He says he is not here, but he will go and he will meet you. And so the, the first persons, you could say, that give the explanation of what the empty tomb means are the angels. And so when you look at the, the accounts in the Gospels, the theme that runs through all of them is the empty tomb in all four accounts. But there are different things that the four accounts tell us about what happened on that day. And one of the things that it highlights in these various accounts is that there were angels present to tell people what happened and at least... Uh, a little bit about why it happened. But one of the things that's interesting is that if you go to Matthew chapter 28, you can look there if you want to. I'm just going to reference what's there. I'm not going to read the whole section for time's sake. But if you look at the account in Matthew 28, you have angels appearing as well in Matthew 28. And it says, Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Which means the angel showed up in a very powerful skin regarding the tomb. And it means that they fainted out of shock. They didn't die, but they were like dead men. They passed out. But they came back to at some point, and it says in verse 11, Now while they were on their way, speaking of the women going from the tomb, 
Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Right now, former President Trump is being uh, prosecuted for something, or at least being accused and tried for something that we see the religious leaders doing here. They bribed the guards to keep them silent about what really happened, and they bribed them to tell a false narrative about what happened. Former President Trump is being tried on hush money charges, paying money to silence people. That's what he's going to be tried. Is that true? Did that happen? Well, in this case, we find the religious leaders uh, being part of the political establishment doing just that, paying off the guards and saying, don't tell people what really happened or what you believe really happened. They obviously didn't believe But they paid them to say that his body was stolen. And there are various other explanations for the empty tomb, that his body was stolen or that they lost it somehow or that it revived, that he revived after being on the cross. But the reality is none of those scenarios make sense in light of all the information. The fact is the Romans knew how to kill people. There's no way they were going to let him off the cross without him being dead. And the idea that the fearful uh, disciples who were hiding away were going to steal his body or lose his body um, and then die for a lie just does not make sense at all in light of the way we normally operate. And so the question is, if they were paid to give a false narrative, what was the true narrative? Well, at the very end of Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his disciples to go therefore and spread the gospel and to make disciples of all the nations. And what we find in Luke chapter 24, if you turn to Luke 24, we find another unique thing about the resurrection account in which we find out that the real narrative of what happened on Easter Sunday is exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. That God told his people what he was going to do. And so in Luke 24, we have another unique thing that's included only in Luke, which is the story of the two people on the road to Emmaus. Whether it was a husband and wife or whether whether it was two men, we don't know. But they're on their way to Emmaus, which was about 70 miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus comes up and starts walking with them. And they don't know it's Jesus after the resurrection. And they began talking about the fact that they really are so disappointed because they thought Jesus was really someone special and that he was going to uh, liberate uh, the uh, nation of Israel. And what Jesus says in verse 25 is, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Now, they had told Jesus, you know, some women came from the tomb and and told us that it was empty. And some of the men went and saw that it was empty, too. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for not believing the women. He rebukes them for not believing the scripture. He says, oh, foolish men, so of slow to believe what the Bible says. The Bible said that the the Messiah would have to die and then be raised from the dead. And the story goes on to say that as they were eating and the breaking of bread, they realized that it was Jesus. And so what stands out in this account is that the explanation of what happened at the beginning of the New Testament is actually found in the Old Testament. God promised a Savior. And he promised that that Savior would suffer 
and that he would die and would rise again. And like so many of us, we're so used to reading our emails and our texts and just kind of rushing over them and missing what's there. Well, they missed what was in the Old Testament. And the reality is God told them ahead of time and told us ahead of time exactly what would happen. And yet God in his grace continued for 40 days to grant that Jesus would appear to them in in a number of different ways. And so if you look at the account in John chapter 20 and, and 21, you have Jesus appearing to the disciples. And it says in John 20 that on one occasion Jesus showed up in a room in which the 11 were in, except for Thomas. So it was 10 of them, not 11 of them, and some of the other disciples. And he appears to them, and they tell Thomas, who's one of the disciples or one of the apostles, and Thomas says, well, I'll I'll never believe unless I put my fingers in his nail prints and I put my hand in his side. Until I see him, I won't believe, even though you say You've seen him. And so the Lord makes him wait eight days. And on the following Sunday, Jesus shows up again. And and doubting Thomas, as we call him, is there with all the other disciples. And Jesus says, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He believes. But Jesus says something very important. He says, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And so he's highlighting the fact that not everyone is going to get an appearance from Jesus. That most people will come to believe through the testimony of the apostles, through the testimony of the scriptures. And yet God is gracious Jesus was gracious to Thomas and appeared to him. In fact, you, you, if you read um, various testimonies, there, there are Muslims who become Christians who will testify of seeing Jesus. There are Jewish people who talk about becoming Christians and having seen an appearance of Jesus. Now, can God do that? He can if he wants to. He's God. And if he wants to do that, then that's fine. And that's God's grace. And I believe that if we really need something special, God will give us what we need if we desire to trust him. But the reality is the religious leaders um, saw Jesus work miracles and they heard the soldiers come back and testify of what they testified and they still refused to believe. And Jesus even said at the uh, in the story of the um, rich man and Lazarus. He tells a story about a rich man who dies and a poor man who dies named Lazarus. And they, uh, the rich man goes to hell and the poor man goes to heaven or the paradise, <clears throat> the bosom of Abraham as it's called. And the man in hell says to Abraham, please send Lazarus to warn my brothers about this place. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. And he says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not listen even if someone rises from the dead. Why is that? That's because of a heart that just refuses to believe no matter what. And so the issue isn't a lack of information. The issue is whether or not we really want to know the truth. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. C.S. Lewis is quoting scripture says, if you seek, you will find. If you truly seek, if you truly knock, if you truly ask, God is merciful. And so there will be no one who stands before God on judgment day and says, I would have believed in you if I had sufficient information. 
They had sufficient information about the resurrection. The reality is every single person, one way or the other, will have sufficient information about the resurrection. And the issue is whether or not we're willing to believe, whether or not we're willing to lay down our swords and stop fighting God and receive the mercy that he offers us. Well, as I said, the real key uh, to belief is not that we see Jesus like some people have, but that we believe the testimony that we have of the apostles that's recorded in the Bible for us. In John 21, what we see is one account of the commissioning of the apostles. Uh, We have... Um, Jesus telling his disciples after he's raised from the dead, you need to tell people that I'm raised from the dead. You need to tell people why that's so significant, why that's so important. You're to tell them that be forgiven because of what I've done. You're to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here in this account in John 21, we have Jesus restoring Peter. You'll notice, you may have noticed in Mark 16, and the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, who was a disciple of Peter. And his account, he says that the angel said, go to the disciples and tell them, and especially tell Peter, that I'm going to see them soon, that I'm risen from the dead. Why is that significant? Because Peter denied the Lord three times. He said, I don't know the man. And he cursed. And Peter had every reason to expect that he would be rejected. That if perhaps Jesus was who he thought he was, he probably thought, I'm in big trouble. Because I denied him three times. At the most crucial point, I said I didn't know him. And I can hear him say on Judgment Day, I don't know Peter. I never knew Peter. And so Jesus comes and he restores Peter. And he says, he gives Peter the opportunity to do just the opposite of what he did on the night that he was betrayed. He asks him three times, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. If you love me, then love my people. And tell them, the implications of the fact that I've lived, I've died, and I've risen from the dead. Tell them what this means. Love my sheep. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful reminder of how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is meant to communicate that he did what he did for people who don't deserve it. He did what he did for people who need it. The thief on the cross was condemned and dying because he deserved it. And he knew he deserved it. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Peter denied Jesus and he deserved to die and be rejected because of it. And yet Jesus restored him. Jesus forgave him. And Peter went on to testify of the tender mercy of and love and grace of God in Jesus. Well, let me conclude by uh, having us think a little bit about what does the resurrection say to us? Obviously, like I said at the beginning, the, the, the women running from the tomb with astonishment and fear and all kinds of mixed emotions, thinking, what does this mean? Is the real question of Easter. What does the empty tomb mean? What does it mean for you and me? And therefore, we want to think about that because the reality is all of us look at our experiences and ask the question, what does it mean? What does it mean that I'm poor? What does it mean that I'm rich? What does it mean that I'm a nobody? What does it mean that I'm famous? Uh, Everybody asks those questions. What do my experiences mean? And the only one who can tell us what they mean is God. And the only way I can understand what my experiences are and what they mean as a Christian is if I understand 
the experience of Jesus and what it means. It's crucial. I cannot understand my experience as a Christian unless I understand his experience, what it means that he died and rose from the dead. So let me just highlight very briefly some things that we could talk a long time about. But the resurrection shouts at us. And it shouts some very, very important thing and things. Um, in Romans 1.4, it says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Which means through the resurrection, God says of Jesus, He is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's what the resurrection says. They looked at Jesus on the cross and said, Ha! You say God delights in you, then let him do something. Well, God is testifying that he does delight in Jesus. And he raised him from the dead to give Jesus his stamp of approval. The second thing is, God says Jesus is no sinner. It tells us in Acts chapter 2 that God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why did Jesus have to be raised? Because he wasn't a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. And so therefore, death could not hold him because he was not a sinner. And therefore, God says by raising him from the dead, Jesus is no sinner. He died for sinners. That's what we need to understand. We go on from there, and the Bible tells us that the resurrection means God says to us, Jesus has defeated sin and death. He's no longer dead, and therefore he's conquered death. It says in Hebrews 2, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You ever think of death and are afraid? Even the best of people can fear death. Because death is very unnatural. Death is a penalty for sin. And yet death has been overcome. And the sting of death has been taken away through Jesus. He defeated death and the sin that causes it. Then finally, and we sang about a number of these things this morning, God says to us through the resurrection, Jesus is the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The payment is accepted. Justice is satisfied. Justice is satisfied. You remember in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him on this certain mountain. And right at the moment when he's about to kill his own son, God says, wait, don't do that. It's okay. You don't have to do that. It was a test to see if you loved me, but it was also meant to do something more because there was a ram caught in the thicket and Abraham sees the ram and he sacrifices the ram in place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. You've probably heard that name for God, Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Now, we tend to think the Lord will provide my next meal. The Lord will provide my next job. The Lord will provide whatever I need materially, which is true But that's not what it's talking about primarily. It's talking about the Lord will provide a way to deliver me from what I deserve, which is death. He will provide a substitute for me so, so that I don't have to be the one on the altar. The Lord will provide a Savior. And God tells us to the resurrection, that Savior that I promised you is Jesus The final thing, one more thing, is that God says to the resurrection, Jesus is the Lord, the King of all, to whom we will all give an account. If you look at what the Bible talks about after the resurrection of Christ, it tells us that he fulfilled Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Some people think that today I've begotten you refers to the incarnation or Christmas time. It doesn't. It refers to Easter. It refers to the resurrection because that verse from Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts 13 when it's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And so what does it mean? It means in in the context of Psalm 2, God says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I've installed the king of the universe. And his name is Jesus. And that's why it goes on to talk about the fact that if we are not right with God, we should be very, very afraid. Because it says... In Acts chapter 10, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. And then he told the disciples to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So that God says, I raised Jesus to let you know that you will stand before him on judgment day. He is the judge of the living and the dead. But if you go on and read what it says further in Acts 10, it says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So there's two important things to see here is that, yes, Jesus is the judge that every single one of us will stand before and give an account of our life. But that judge can become your savior. So that when the... Angels say, do not be afraid. They're talking to those who believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, if, you, if, if he's not your mediator, if you're going to appear before God without representation and try to argue your case before God that you're good enough to be received by him and not judge for your sins, if you're going to take that stance, then you have no hope before a holy God. But if you receive the merciful provision in Jesus, the Bible says, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. And that's why Romans 10 can say, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So when we think about the implications, and let me just wrap this up for us this morning. When we think about the implications of that, resurrection for us as believers for those who need not be afraid the judge is now our savior and that's why it says in romans 8 who is the one who condemns christ jesus is he who died yes rather who was raised who is at the right hand of god who also intercedes for us and so it also says in romans 4 He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So to all those who entrust themselves to Jesus, God says, your judge is now your savior. I proclaim that you are forgiven and righteous in my sight, no matter how sinful you are. It goes on to tell us in Romans 6 that to all those who trust in Jesus, God says to us, You will walk in newness of life. And I will be with you to the end. It says in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the resurrection says, I need not fear the judgment of God. The resurrection says, something wonderful has happened in my life. And I can be different. I don't have to be defined by my past. I don't have to be enslaved to my sin. I can be different. And I can find joy and peace and true happiness in God. That's why in Ephesians 1 it says that Paul prays that God would open our eyes to see what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And he says that power is revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. That resurrection power is given to all those who believe in Jesus to be different, to be more like Christ. God also says 
to all those who are trusting in Jesus, you are fully loved now and forever, even if they slaughter you. If you read Romans 8, it says in Romans 8, in verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Before that, it says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? People looked at Jesus on the cross and said, He's cursed by God. He's obviously a wicked man. He's obviously someone God is punishing. People look at Christians and see the suffering they go through. They see them die at the hands of men. They see them persecuted and they say they must be hated by God. They must be rejected by God. They must be cursed by God. And don't you think that sometimes Christians wonder, maybe that's true. Maybe I am going through what I'm going through because I'm cursed by God. Because God really hates me. The Bible says, no, the resurrected Christ who people thought was cursed by God, is the beloved Son of God. Just because you're slaughtered doesn't mean you're hated by God because Jesus was slaughtered on your behalf. Because Jesus was slaughtered on our behalf, even if we are, in a sense, slaughtered as a sheep, it does not mean that we are not loved by God. But I have to look beyond my suffering to his suffering and his resurrection And know that through Jesus Christ, I am loved. And because of Jesus Christ, I am loved. And the Bible says that one day, because Jesus was raised, you and I will be raised too. Our bodies will be raised to be glorified just like his. It says in Romans 8, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We have the hope of full and lasting, true happiness in the kingdom of God. And it's guaranteed to all those who trust Jesus because of his resurrection. That's where our hope is. When you think about the story that I began with, about the um, princess at the right hand of the king, who showed... Uh, the young man, which door to pick. Yet the question was, what stood behind the door that she picked and told him to pick? We all are going to stand at death's door. And we all have to wonder, what is behind that door? Is there nothing behind that door? Do I just stop existing? The resurrection of Christ says, no, there's something behind the door of death. It's not extinction. Well, if it's not extinction, if there is something else behind that door, what is behind that door? Is it pain and suffering and punishment like the tiger? Or is it reward and blessing and marriage and celebration like the lady? What stands behind the door? The reality is the princess can represent Satan, who says, go toward that door, the door that has the tiger. That's where your happiness lies. That's where your hope beyond the grave lies. Go to that door. The Bible says Satan is like a lion seeking someone to devour. And he only points toward the door that will end in death and destruction. But the reality is there is someone at the right hand of the king of the universe, who is himself king, and his name is Jesus. And he's pointing toward a door. And that door is himself, where he says, I am the door that opens to life. I'm pointing the way. Trust me, and you will be a part of the wedding celebration. There is a great, great wedding celebration to come where you will enjoy full and lasting happiness forever. But the question is whether or not I'm willing to trust a crucified Savior 
Am I willing to trust someone who is condemned as a criminal? Am I willing to trust those who say that Jesus was nothing more than a man who deserved what he got? Or do I believe the scriptures when they say Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and an able and willing Savior for you and for me? If you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never given your life to him, I urge you to do so today. He will gladly receive you. He will welcome you. He will love you. He will forgive you. He will satisfy you. And there's no sin so great that you cannot be forgiven by the great Savior that Jesus is. And if you have already done that, then you have a message for those who've never done that. And we can go out and tell people that Jesus rose from the dead so that we could tell you that you can be forgiven no matter what your sin is, that he is an able and willing Savior. That's the good news that we're to rest in as Christians. That's the good news we're to tell as Christians. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that there is a Savior for sinners. And every single one of us here are sinners deserving of death, deserving of hell. We deserve the tiger. We don't deserve the lady. We don't deserve the marriage. We don't deserve the ceremony, the celebration, the joy. We deserve the punishment and the pain and the suffering. But you've provided someone at the right hand of the Father who gladly points us toward the door of forgiveness and eternal life, who is his himself the door to forgiveness and eternal life. Father, I pray for anyone here who has not yet embraced Jesus, turned from their sins, trusted him as their Lord and Savior. I pray that you'd open their eyes today and that they would do so right now. For those of us who've done that, by your gracious work in our hearts, I pray that we would thank you, praise you, celebrate you in fresh and new ways in our hearts and in our lives, knowing that, Lord Jesus, you are our only hope. We stand without an argument and without adequate representation apart from you. But we praise you that you're able and willing And we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.